Hello, Internet. This is Chase, Redshirt King Wastanar. I am the editor-in-chief for Imperial Esports, and we have a very special edition of the Rough Drafts podcast for you today. I am joined by my good friend, Walter Fedchuk. Walter, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty fine on this wonderful, wonderful day, and I uh, I can't wait to talk to our uh, our special guest today and kind of get a, a look behind the curtain of how uh, how <laughs> teams work. Yeah, this is one of those guys that we've uh, we've wanted to talk to for a while now. We finally found a way to make it work. It is uh, Hubo Soldershim, uh, former coach for Gravity and Gamers 2. Hubo, how you doing, man? Hey, uh, a special guest, I guess. So, yeah, I'm doing pretty good, guys. Uh, I appreciate you a lot for having me. I listened to the TSM and Immortals uh, podcast the other day, so I thought that those went well, and I decided that I wanted to drop by and have a conversation. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, it's it's awesome to have you here, man. And, you know, I guess we need to start this conversation just uh-huh. to give people a little bit of a background of who you are in case, you know, the, the name Soldier is something they've kind of, you know, they remember hearing in the, in the back of their head sometime around, you know, January, February uh, when you were with Gravity. Right. Um, so, so let's just talk about, you know, like, you know, just on a basic level, what got you into esports and particularly the analytical and coaching side of things? Well, first of all, I don't know who would ever, you know, have me at the back of their mind. I'm always at the front of the brain, baby. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, what got me into esports was, I mean, Chase, you were there. It was Paravine, and at one point at one point in my life, I decided that, like, playing a lot of League was just, like, making me really, like, toxic, and I enjoyed the game, but I didn't enjoy playing the game as much as I, as I had used to when I first discovered it. And um, this was... When, then I decided to start, you know, writing articles. And when I wrote articles, a lot of them were, frankly, a lot of them were, you know, kind of bullshit. And the first thing I wrote was on it was the a, the former HQ AD carry who almost who attempted to, you know, commit suicide after the uh, after the match fixing scandal. He and then I translated a bunch of Naver articles right when that was coming out because because Nilu asked me to. And then after that, I started doing a you know a bunch of you know, clickbaity, reddity, you know, power ranking articles and this and that before I really decided that I want to really give coaching and uh, analysis a try, especially since that was my original passion. And uh, it was only when I got into analysis, I realized how little about the game that I actually knew. (laughs) (laughs) So, so talk us through that, that first kind of step from, from writer to analyst, because I'm sure there are, you know, people who, you know, I've always thought like, oh, you know, I could write for Gold Pretend. I could, I could get some stuff mm-hmm. out there, and you know, think about like how they envision their path. What was your path like? Because there's obviously, you know, there's a step between being a writer at a site like Paravine, where we were, you know, lucky enough to work with some really cool esports minds that you know, right, we could right, all bounce right. off of, mm-hmm. uh, and then getting onto these actual orgs themselves. So, what was that step like for you? I mean, it was it was hard, man. And you know, looking looking back on it now, is that I didn't know how dumb I was about the game, like specifically about the game. And 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 the, and the thing you kind of realize that once you kind of get the game, the meta doesn't really matter. It it's just it's just League of Legends. It's like a set. It's like a set of you know zeros and ones, and it's a bunch of rules that you have to follow. And there's a procedure, especially in this meta. But you know we can get to that later. But there's a procedure that you always have to follow. I remember when I first joined an organization. It was called uh, GSI Gaming, and you know my friend Josh Raven invited me to try it out. And then I I was eventually working, and I, actually 
the one of the kids who's on the team, Perks, he's in LCS now, so good on him. When I first joined that team, I was writing like these dossiers, dude. You know, kind of like trying to scout out enemy opponents. And then when I when I tried my hand at analysis, you know, coaching our own League of Legends team and trying to teach them how to play the game, it was all this, you know, it was like it was important stuff, but like just things that you know once you say after a while just sounds repetitive and it kind of shows that i lacked a clear understanding of the game a lot of stuff that you know maybe people you know casters like freak monty or you know jat would regurgitate that sounds pleasing to the ear but it's not easily digestible and it's not very useful at all to um the players themselves so you know i i mean of course i say this looking back on hindsight but at the time I made the mistake, and I think a lot of other junior analysts make the mistake of thinking that they honestly understand the game better than you know master and challenger players who defar- who devote far more hours to the game itself. So uh, at least on an intuitive level. So I, I was I was I was very overconfident and very brash, and I frankly didn't you know really didn't know what I was doing. So you say that one of the biggest problems that rookie analysts have is is that they know nothing compared to master and and challenger tier players. Mm-hmm. In 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 what way? Like what what exactly is is the difference between a master and a challenger player and and say, you know, a, a rookie analyst who might not be master and challenger? Like what's the biggest difference that you notice when when those two types of people interact? Right. First, let me preface my comments by stating that this is just in in my own experience, right? Is that I haven't met all the junior analysts in the world and I haven't met all the coaches in the world, but then just in my experience when people dealing with people who are new to the scene and asking them to sh- if they're trying out for a team that I'm, you know, that I'm running or a team or that I'm that I'm doing consulting for and I ask them to show me something that they know about the game, you know, on like a YouTube video or on like a on a replay, they 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 can't they can't do it as effectively as they need to do it especially since so much money is coming to the North American, you know, challenger and championship scenes. But to get to your question specifically, what I mean is that I, I noticed that a lot of these analysts come in without great game knowledge because the prospect of analysis and coaching seems fun and exciting to them. Now, that's not a bad thing in itself, but what that means is is that you have to put in hours, numerous tons of fucking hours in order to get good at the game, probably more hours than the people who are playing this game professionally, you know, for a living. And a lot of people don't do that you know, right off the bat. So I see analysts, you know, it's kind of like an almost exponential growth. They get better really quickly. But in the first few weeks when they start off, they go like, they say something like rotations, 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 ward here, ward there. Oh, you have to play a safe play style. You have to play aggressive play style, power spikes, power spikes, power spikes, without really realizing or understanding why those terms are important and how that all basically comes under the umbrella of punishing the enemy for mistakes. And because they don't understand intrinsically, even down to basic lane matchups, a lot of analysts these days consider themselves masters of macro gameplay. They, uh, they make the mistake that they don't need to know, you know what's going on specifically inside the game as long as they regurgitate certain words that can basically be applied to any situation in any League of Legends game ever played. Right. See, those are the kinds of things that I, I always find interesting, especially, you know, not to knock certain social media places where we see a lot of people throw out their own analysis, but it's this whole idea of, you know, you need to go a level deeper. It's, it's one thing to say like, oh, they were behind on a rotation here. And that's true, but you're not getting into the meat of, 
well, why were they behind? What were they doing mm-hmm. instead? What was the decision that was made, and why did they make that call? What you know, there are a few things in league that are truly unexplainable when it comes to you know certain decisions that are made. But as a general mm-hmm. rule, there's there's a mentality behind it. These guys have played so many games. There's a reason they make the calls they do, and I think you're hitting on a really good point, which is just you know how important it is to get that deeper level of knowledge versus just the surface stuff. Now, you, you said that with analysts, it's it's kind of this exponential growth because they're in that environment more. They're, they're playing more. Do you, do you believe that you know it, it is the playing of the game that finally gets this stuff to click? Or does that come from just that understanding of, wow, there's a lot of deeper stuff going on and that's the part I need to get to when I'm watching film, when I'm making these write-ups, when I'm doing all of the work that comes with my job? I think playing the game and watching the game are equally as effective in terms of your growth as a as a coach. But I do think, and this is important, that for a lot of coaches, especially with infrastructure these days, you need a senior coach or senior analyst so you can go under their wing and they can really teach you the mechanics of the game or teach you what's useful to regurgitate to players. So when you're talking to these players, they don't have a lot of time or desire to... to understand you know everything about the enemy team or everything about themselves if you're in the lcs you only have a week to prepare for now it's a best of three in na and best of two in europe right Mm -hmm. so you have to fix a bunch of problems very quickly and if you can't get to the fucking point then you're not useful at all and it's better to get another coaching candidate and the, the reason why a lot of these rookie coaches and analysts on challenger and on LCS teams can't get to the point is because they don't inherently understand the game. You know, so there are, a lot of them are working as they went along. And that, ha- that happened to me at Gravity as well. I was working as I went along and I eventually got fired for it because, you know, I, my understanding of the game wasn't good enough. After I got fired, my game knowledge was fucking awesome. But before <laughs> I got fired, I, you know, but truth be told, up until that point, I didn't really understand anything. And now talking to the game with former players that I coached back in the day, back at, you know, like people like I talked to the people like Pinoy and Perks and stuff like that. And they would, and back in the day when we were talking, they were agreeing with me and they were saying, yeah, I mean, what, what you're saying is right. We should concentrate on this, which you should concentrate on this. And this really inflated my ego. And this really gave me a false sense of confidence. But now when all of us look back together, we can basically say, yeah, you know, Luca, you knew nothing about the game and I knew nothing about the game, but it was kind of like a learning experience together. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I was learning more. And now if I had to go back, there's so much more, there's so many more important details that I could just, you know, stamp into these people. Not necessarily, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if I'd be successful. You know, I had Gamers 2 and Gamers 2 was a whole nother challenge in itself when I was uh, living in Europe. But I do think that, you know, the tools that I have equipped now are ones that you can only gain through experience and only gain when you have this kind of epiphany and suddenly the game becomes really simple and clear to understand and that you understand that there's one way to win the game. There's always a perfect strategy and there's always the next best thing to do. So, so you said epiphany right there and you've talked about how younger or rookie analysts don't have the kind of depth to mm-hmm. tell uh, veteran players or, or you know challenger master tier players mm-hmm. exactly how to play the game. So it sounds mm-hmm. to me like if you're a general manager of a team and you're looking for a coach, mm-hmm. it's not like a single question that you can be like, all right, I'm going to ask this analyst this question mm-hmm. and there's a correct answer to it. And if he gets the correct answer, he's a good analyst. Mm-hmm. It's a, there's a correct answer to this question, but the depth, you know, the depth of the answer 
is really what will determine if they're a good analyst or, or a poor analyst, correct? Yeah. Yeah, actually, like, Walter, if so when I was trying out with Gravity, right, and we had our first scrim, I hit on all these points, a bunch of points, right, that gra that the Gravity people needed to work on. And they were like, oh, yeah, the analysis is good. The analysis is actually better than they had a, another, like, challenger player named, like, Warlock or something like that who was, like, fucking terrible. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> I remember I've him. I've so, him before. <laughs> so, yeah. So, they, like, they had, like, this weird guy. I don't know. This guy is, like, pretty weird. But, like, I think, first of all, when you're dealing with – and just as a side note, when you're dealing with, like, LCS players, like – Make sure you concentrate on the stuff that's like really important. Like, don't concentrate on their item builds for, like, for God's sake, because that's like honestly not that important. That's something you can discuss at, at, like at any other time when you're trialing for a team. Concentrate on the stuff that's important. But what 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 was interesting about the situation was that when I first get, went to a Skype call right with these players, I explained what I thought they did wrong and what I thought they did right. I explained all the things that you know they needed to do in future games, and they all agreed with me. Even like you know. I, I think that Saint could kind of sense that like my game knowledge wasn't that great, but you know they were uh, they needed a coach really quickly. It was only when I I got to the house and started having to work with the team more and more that I realized that I, my game knowledge wasn't as good as it should be, and therefore I lost confidence, and therefore I started doing other things and started messing around because I felt like I wasn't helping the team at all, and it was a, kind of like a vicious cycle that continued about all the way until. Uh, I got kicked out. I, I know that, you know, I don't often cite, you know, Last Shadow, but I know that Last Shadow has said something like, a lot of these quote-unquote November coaches, which is a fucking, it's it's funny, but it's kind of a shit term, by the way. Uh, a lot of these November coaches, they're good for two weeks, and then they don't know anything else. And I've talked to Ocelot, too, when I was try helping the team out, and Ocelot also told me something like, yeah, you know, a lot of our analysts are good for one week, they say a lot of new things for one week. And then the next week they say the same shit and we don't learn anything else, you know? Mm -hmm. That's because the, uh, the game knowledge has become like what's been acceptable, what's the, the standard, the norm for game knowledge. The bar has been set so low that they're all regurgitating the same shit that goes on the surface, the same stuff that you see in all these cat professional casts from LCS, you know, LPL, you know, LCK, whatever. And they don't know how to go one level deeper or another level deeper. And they don't really know how to truly argue and appreciate the game. And I think even now, I don't really know how to argue and appreciate the game. But it's the fact that I've seen, you know, mostly St. Vicious, who kind of enlightened me to a bunch of stuff. But, you know, it's the fact that I've seen and have been able to kind of interact with people who truly know the game has been has kind of showed me how lacking I really was before I went to the scene. And I think that's why... Uh, I went in with such a with such a bang and came out with an equally loud bang, you know, very very quickly into my tenure. Can you give like any any sort of like example of of like what a what early Soldra would have said as as mm -hmm. good analysis versus mm -hmm. what you know tr what you know now you would say is I'm I'm way better. What you know? Can you give like any sort of you know quick little example? You know, I honestly I honestly think the most important thing was like lane was actually lane matchups and stuff like that. Like, or at least 2v2 and 2v3 matchups, right? So, for, for example, early, early Soldier would have said something like, well, so something I would, have, I would have said before is like, oh, you should ward here. Why? Oh, because all the, you know, LC, like, L, like Koreans and Chinese people ward here. Or I would have said like, oh, you have to make this rotation to top lane. Why? Because that's what the Koreans and Chinese people do without really understanding the procedure, like mm -hmm. without explaining to them why. Besides the fact that Korean people and Chinese people, you know, it, how a East Asian people play the game, that's how they did it. I couldn't explain to them 
why you know they were supposed to do something Mm -hmm. whereas now like i have an i i have a i think i have a more intricate knowledge of how to explain certain things for example you want to you want to punish their top laner and deny as much cs as possible that's why you have to freeze the lane this way or especially because now jungle support matchups are so important i could say something like you know, even though Nidalee is the earliest, the strongest early game jungler, as long as we pick Rek'Sai, we'll be safe. Because if she tries to pounce on you, you can just W to knock up. And that, mm-hmm. that interaction exists. And then you can easily, you know, reburrow and get away again. And therefore, it's hard to it's hard for her to punish you in the jungle. And if she tries to counter jungle, then you have the Prey Seeker. So she can't really seek you out. And you can ward your own jungle. And if you if you ward your own jungle and you see her come in here, then you should do this. You should go steal the enemy Raptors. Or you should go steal the enemy Red Buff. Or you should go dive top tower because, you know, they're setting up a dive for bot. I really know, I think that now I know, like, my knowledge of how to punish is stronger. For example, you know, back in the day, tier was really important on a bunch of champions, right? Mm-hmm. So I'd say, you don't even have to gank early, just wait until right after they come back with tier. Because a lot of these people want to come back with tier and then farm, 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 farm. Send them back so they have an awkward item buy, so they don't know what to buy. Send them back with 230 gold, so they don't have 360 gold to buy longsword. And they maybe they can like, buy one pop, but it's overall like very inefficient, you know, a very inefficient base, right? So I think, you know, teaching people like how to play the opponent and how to, you know, mind game people and how the and understanding how the champions work and therefore being able to because I know how the champions work, I'm able to relate more to, you know, someone like Gilius or someone like Aka uh who don't really who didn't really know the game that well, I'm able to teach them the game more because I'm able to explain to them why certain things have to happen based on which champions are being played. So I, I think that discussion and deliberation is important for any league players. Like league players, professional league players are very passionate about the game, and I've never seen anyone who doesn't want to discuss the game with me, especially European players. Mm-hmm. So being able to bring ammo to the table and consistently throw ideas until you get to the best possible solution in which the player might be wrong or the coach might be wrong, I think is very, very important. But if you don't have the sufficient knowledge to argue with your players, then what are you doing there, you know? That's just my take on it. Yeah, no, and and it brings up a very interesting point because because everything you just said, you know, this this ability to give, you know, the the reasoning behind certain decisions and have the depth of, you know, how these things combine and the end results. These are all the things that I think, if you were to ask, like, what does that job set mean? Well, that's what a coach should be, right? Someone who understands all those things and can explain it in such a way to the players because they just get the game on this level that he can literally coach them with this kind of perspective and get the team where they need. And so when you look at, you know, when you became uh, a coach for Gravity, when you mm-hmm. make that leap from being, you know, an analyst to a coach, um, mm-hmm. that's something that you have been quoted in, you know, places like Gold Pretend when you were on your exit uh, interview as saying that was um, something you felt was a mistake for both sides. So, mm-hmm. you know, can you kind of talk about the difficulties of that transition from analyst to coach and why it's you know why that doesn't work for either side of the equation even in instances where someone might think it would first of all i i i want to i want to address the latter part of your question first and and say why why people like me who there are a lot of in the league scene them transitioning to coaching is pretty bad when I talk about people like me, right, I'm talking about kids who are in like the middle of their semesters in college who don't really want to study and they just want to play League of Legends all day, right? Uh-huh. And they think that the the idea of acquiring a lot of Twitter followers and whatever is fun, right? So they put in a lot of hours into coaching the game that they love to play, which is, you know, that's admirable and that's really, really fine. 
But in, in the situation in Gravity, and I think that we're seeing the same situation in Echo Fox, again, to, to be honest with you, with how quickly they're trying to look for a Korean translator in the area. I know Rick Fox tweeted that out recently. And um, I, I think that when, when LCS teams, right, a lot of them, they're not early birds, right? A lot of them wait to the last second to accomplish stuff. And a lot of, and a part of this is coaching. So a lot of these LCS teams often wait until the last second to acquire coaches, right? Because there's a deadline in which they have to submit something. So I, I was chatting with Davis Vogue, uh, the former owner of Gravity, which is now Echo Fox. <laughs> and uh, he's a really great guy. And I think he, in, he implied to me that the reason why I got picked up was because there was a deadline that had to be met. LCS teams have to submit their coaching staffs and their rosters on, by a certain date and that they needed to acquire somebody as fast as possible. And especially with how late a lot of these teams are being bought and how late a lot of these coaches are being recruited, the process is becoming, you know, the trial process is becoming quicker and quicker and quicker and less precise and less careful because they're willing to take anyone on in order to uh, comply with Riot's request or Riot's re- regulation that they need to submit a coach, right? Mm-hmm. And that's bad for the that's bad for the organization because you're getting a shitty because I was a shitty coach and so you're acquiring me, so you're acquiring you know a shitty employee, right? And so obviously you can fire that guy, but you still pay me. I'm not going to say my salary, but you still pay me a high amount of money, you know, to fly to California and to live in live in the house and to interact with these players when they were getting nothing beneficial out of my time from being there on the on the coaches side right the aspiring coaches side i know that a lot of these fucking coaches are kids like me who are 18 to 23 years old who are in college who don't really want to study right and they just want to go out and take a semester off and you know explore the world and you know play the game that they love right what what this does is i think it puts a lot of people it put me and i'm a very lazy guy so it might have just been me but i talked to other people i talked to like matt who i think feels the same kind of the same way it puts uh, it puts people in kind of a relaxation mentality like this is like supposed to be for fun and games when the most important thing you can do as a coach is show your players that you are working harder than them mm-hmm. so a lot of these coaches who don't have that high game experience, not only do they are they not able to contribute with their game knowledge because their game knowledge is low, they also come in with a mental block because a lot of them are abandoning are abandoning like really tough, you know, college curriculums in order to go, you know, quote unquote live the dream and quote unquote, you know, get all these Twitter followers and stuff like that. And they're automatically behind the eight ball because they think that they're supposed to be resting when really they should be working the hardest that they've ever worked in their lives. So mm-hmm. I think that's why it, it it comes out as a minus for for both for both people. And there's also the factor that a lot of I think older pros don't like listening to coaches who are younger than them. And I'm and I'll always subscribe to the idea that older coaches, you know, most usually probably like older than 23 or something like that are the best. You know, even if they're gameplay coaches. Do you think that that point in particular is why we've seen a number of organizations go towards actual established real sports coaches like like CLG did with with uh, Blurred Limes, like you've seen TSM do? Like originally was was Team Liquid's intention before they ended up settling on Loco Doco? Right. Um, to be honest with you, I, I don't know. I think that having a head coach who has experience and who has experience and on and the education on how to really control, you know, they're asked how to really control players and how to really control athletes, whether they be, you know, physical athletes or cyber athletes and, and how to, you know, man, how to manage those personalities. I think that's a good skill, 
But my sense is that I, I honestly don't know how to answer this question. I think they help, but I'm not exactly sure how much they help to be honest with you because I've had some of my doubts in the past because I've, I, my, my saying has always been talent overrides any coaching. And I, I subscribe to the idea that even if Daylor wasn't there, for example, and Daylor is a fantastic fucking coach, right? He really, you know, he deserves all the credit that he gets, but I, I, I subscribe to the idea that even if Daylor wasn't there, then that team of fanatic would still probably could have gone 18 and zero. There was a good chance, maybe not 18 and zero, but certainly like 17, 16 and two or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I honestly wouldn't be able to uh, t- to give you guys a finite answer, but I would be interested in hearing your thoughts. Well, and I think this is one of the things that becomes so interesting about the coaching conversation. It's one that I'm starting to get a better handle on because I'm about to go off to Istanbul to work directly right. with my organization, and I'm you know I got this job because I am friends with the coach. Uh, Harun Yavuz, who uh, I, I cannot wait to start working with on a, on a regular basis. And so all these things you're saying about you know working with someone who's been doing this for longer than you and taking all this stuff in really resonates with me because that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of kind of becoming I'm going to become a much better analyst that way, and I'll be doing it from a full time perspective rather than mm-hmm. as a student perspective, which I think are kind of two of the notes that you hit on that I, I think really resonated with me. Right. Um, I, I do think as far as, you know, you asked me where, where my opinion on coaching is. And I've, I've said this, uh, on the podcast before, but I, I think it's worth going in more detail here. I think different teams need different types of coaches. And, you know, coaches can kind of dictate the atmosphere to a certain extent, but it's also, you know, to a certain extent based on what's the talent you have around you. You know, I, mm-hmm. I was fortunate <laughs> enough to do some, uh, some interviews with, uh, Rockat while I was, uh, visiting Cologne and Berlin over the last two years. And I, I know mm-hmm. Fly and I think Fly is a great owner. And for the team that he had at the time, I don't know if anyone could have run that team as well as Fly did. Cause these were all Polish guys, at, at least at the beginning when they were coming just off of the KMT, uh, right. that, you know, he could really relate to. They were very young and people forget sometimes how young these guys are. So, so, you know, you look at some of these players and you look at someone like Power of Evil, right? And Power of Evil is, you know, everyone thinks of him like, oh my God, he's this, you know, big name player, this huge signing for Origin. He's already got all these accolades and people are so excited to see what he does next. He's 18 years old. And he's like not a not an old eighteen either. I mean, the guy was just barely old enough to play for Unicorns of Love last split. And you know, you talk to these guys and you really sit down with them. And and sometimes you realize like these are young guys that need to be molded in that kind of you know disciplinarian way. You know, there was a funny story of you know when I went to go interview Woolite for Rocket uh, back in the in the spring split of last year. And I asked him, you know, what's the one thing you've learned while being a part of this Rocket team? And his answer was, I learned to take practice seriously. And, you know, for someone on the outside, like, I'm like, what, what do you mean you just learned that? Like, you're a professional player. That's, that's insane. But then, you, you know, you remember how young he is. You remember how little professional experience he's had, how few coaches he would have had at that point that really would have instilled that kind of work ethic. And you realize, like, yeah, that probably actually is the most important thing he learned this year. And right. for a guy like that, you need a very particular style of coach because if you just trusted that kind of guy to his game knowledge, he's not going to take that natural ability and apply himself in the same way. Whereas if you look at you know a team that has more veteran presences, 
uh, you know, a team that, you know, like, you, you know, has yellow star on it or so as, or, you know, some of these guys that have been around for forever and just get the game, they can instill that in their teammates. And you can have a, a coach that maybe kind of shifts in a different direction because that side of things can be taken care of as far as making sure people are working, as far as making sure, you know, all that comes in. And then it's just, well, what can I add to these players? What can I do that they can't naturally bring? Um, but Walter, where do you come down on? Because you've actually had experience with the Challenger Org. I'm about to start my journey, so I you have probably a different perspective on it than I do. So, so I am probably listening to everything that that Soldier has said. I am I was at fault for a lot of the things that he's <laughs> mentioned about young analysts. No, um, I mean it's a part of the process, dog. Like I said, so I mean, yeah, continue. No, no, sorry, I, for interrupting. I, I, I take I take no offense to that, and it, it honestly like makes me think back and I you know I was working with with cognitive you know kind of voluntarily back when they had that game against uh I think it was Lull Pro where they like lost game one they got crushed right okay. somehow won game two yeah. and then like game three and I remember like sitting there and literally just making these generalized statements and even and any time that I would you know watch a scrim and say anything about it because they didn't have like a full-time coach so I just was like oh well I've watched this game since season one like you know I'm better than nothing and and I would just make like these kind of very generalized statements and do things like okay well we want to award you know we want to award here we want to award here we want to award here and we affectionately got a a award that is in the bush right by like the wolf camp on the mid lane side that mm-hmm. we started calling the shorter ace the the shorter <laughs> because he dropped a pink word there and just he just instinctively just started dropping a pink word there because he saw cacao do it one time. <laughs> and, and nobody and like and we just discovered in scrims and in, in games like nobody would ever walk into that bush so you put a pink word in that bush and and it's there for you know 30 minutes of the game before someone randomly walks into it so mm-hmm. i think you, i think he makes a great point about maybe you want to have someone who is established as a coach and, and really does have this very in-depth knowledge of the game and is able to communicate effectively you know why that word is so effective we we eventually stumbled upon right. the reason of that you know well nobody walks you know nobody walks through that bush so it's going to sit there forever. It was kind of like when the little pixel bushes in River teams just started putting pink words in there because junglers never started walking through there. And then you know by like the fourth or fifth week of the season, teams all of a sudden realized like hey ninety percent of the time we go by this bush there's a word there let's just start you know let's just start walking into it let's just start sweeping it and and gradually that impacts where you're placing words and where your ganks are going and. And that sort of thing. So I, I think that's a very interesting point. And being one of those people that he's kind of saying you're setting yourself <laughs> up for failure, I, I have to agree with him. I, I think that's an excellent point and, and helps yeah, you I mean, pick some of the teams this year. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the most important thing that you have to think about is how do I have the most game impact as a coach? Mm. Like, I think that, I mean, you just want to have the most game impact and you want to prepare your players the best that they can be. Is that are are certain wards? If we're going back to the ward example, important? Yeah, that's really important. Um, but I just leave that to my analysts. If if you're going to, if your players, right, especially in challenger scene, especially in challenger scene, if your players' game knowledge is incomplete, or if they're doing something inefficient, then that is the biggest priority that you have to fix because that adds another dimension on how you know on how to close the game faster, right? Rather than, a, that, rather than maybe a small ward will do. So I think that, I mean, just to kind of close off, the best coaches I've seen really understand 
how to punish item buying, you know, how to punish certain items. So they really research their items and they look at what items that certain players like to buy. And they'll say, okay, at like this time, this person will have this amount of gold at this CS. Um, the best challenges to coaches I know really know how to cultivate junglers and will tell them how to look at, you know, the enemy CS in order to predict their jungle pathing and then track them on the rest of the, for the rest of the map. And I think that the best coaches also understand lane matchups well, like understand every single lane matchup. Once you understand one lane matchup, then you can understand bot lane matchup, 2v2. Once you understand bot lane matchup, then you can understand 3v3 matchup with jungler and 2v2 bot lane. Or, or you can understand something like your jungler mid laner going against enemy jungler mid laner. So you can start envision these scenarios in which these team fights play out and therefore make a call on whether, you know, I think we should skirmish with, you know, this kind of comp or I think we shouldn't and just maybe just play our lanes and keep pushing with wave clear comps or something like that. So I think um, that's what it comes down to. I mean, and sorry, uh, I know I know I'm kind of blustering right now, but I do. There, the the last thing I do want to say is that I, you have to take what I say maybe with a small like a small grain of salt because I know that I'm fairly unique along like the analyst and coaching community, you know, whatever you want to call us, the Twitter analyst community or the Skype community or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very per- peculiar among the community because I think that I really hate the word play style because I think that there's one good way the game should be played, and the game is either played imperfectly or the game is either played illogically or the game is either played inefficiently or it's played well you know that doesn't mean to be doing something all the time sometimes setting up a death brush is the best possible move you could do right like everyone camping a brush and waiting for a pick because you know that there's a high likelihood that the jungler might come and then you're able to steal his buff right mm-hmm. so that doesn't necessarily mean like playing the game like robots like you know constantly rotating around the map but there's always something better you can do according to your comp. So I don't subscribe playstyle to a. When I try to look at someone's you know quote unquote playstyle, I don't necessarily look at his gameplay as much as I do it as, as his champions. Mm. And if this guy is playing like Maokai, like he's trying to play Hecarim or something like that, then he's playing the game the wrong way, you know? Right. Right. So you'd ban out what you'd ban out one of his champions and then see the which champion he's playing the wrong way, and then you punish it. Maokai isn't supposed to, you know, fucking get all the gold. This guy's a tank. All he does is just, like, you know, absorb damage, right? You, sh- you should give, be giving your gold um, to your ADC. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that a lot of people I know make League very complex, but at the same time make it too simple. Like, there's a, there's a very sweet spot balance that there is that I still think that I haven't achieved, especially since I've been out of the scene for so long. But mm-hmm. I think that I haven't achieved it yet, but I think that, you know, I'm closer to there than a lot of other junior analysts are and you know especially and this is to walter but i wouldn't fret about you know maybe filling some of the check marks that i said before because i think it's a process i really think it's a process and i'm part and i'm in the process and you're in the process and i think there are only a few other coaches um that are really you know like complete and you know i know some of my friends will sigh and exasperate when i say this but i think saint vicious is one of them he's one of the people who kind of enlightened me to a lot of facets about the game but probably Koma is another, you know, EDG's Aaron is another. So, like, mm-hmm. coaches who, like, really understand that the, underneath all its shine and, you know, these patches, the game is really the same. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say, I was pre- I appreciate the kind words, and I can say I believe I have gotten better since that point. And I love how you mm-hmm. bring up St. Vicious so much because I, I'm a jungle main. And over the last, right. like, six months, I've started watching him more and more and more, and I feel like I've just gotten better at the game and become more focused at at getting better at all aspects of the game, whether it's playing, whether it's, you know, paying attention to certain things. He's brought up certain things that I've never thought about before. So I find it interesting you bring him up. But mm-hmm. the thing that really excited me for this podcast mm-hmm. was that you had this attachment to G2 and, oh, and God, Ocelot. Yeah. Ocelot right. 
is one of my favorite players of all oh, time. Oh, interesting. Well, not, I, 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 I don't not hear that a was, lot. Not because he was God tier. Like, I start, I, I remember him back in season two and season three. And in season two, I was a jungle main and was bored of jungle and decided I wanted to play mid because I liked Cassiopeia as a champion. And mm-hmm. I literally would spend four or five hours watching Ocelot back on own, own 3D TV. Right, right. Back in the old days and watching him, even when he was ragey, like whatever, but trying to learn from him and mm-hmm. trying to, you know, trying to get better at the game. And mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be an LCS player, and I was silver, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> right. What What was it like working with Ocelot? Because I know early on in in the G two days, there were a lot of issues with his right. within the organization. But what was it like working with him? So I mean, to give people who don't know some background, I've worked with G two twice. The okay. first time I worked with, the first time I worked with Gamers Two was when Ocelot was still the mid laner. It was it was JWoww, Ku. Ocelot, Yuki, and Rydal, I think. Uh, yes, yes, that's like its first iteration. Yeah, yeah, and I think Kasing was there too for like a for like a small portion of time. Mm-hmm. And Broken Shadow was actually the head coach. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my game knowledge was pretty ass. I think a lot of people knew my game knowledge was ass. But again, like since I wasn't working with them for a long time, I said like a lot of quote unquote smart stuff that I think still that I would still say now, but I'd certainly be able to interpret things and present things in a different manner. Mm-hmm. But Ocelot. The thing about Ocelot is that he's like, I don't take no bullshit kind of human being to the extent that I think he's bullshitting sometimes. Like, that's kind of like he, he, like, he has like this, you know, like red aura, like the Super Saiyan aura sometimes that I see. And I mean, I, I really appreciate him because I think that the first time I was working with him and I came on as an analyst, I think Ocelot was pretty, you know, whether it was for sure or not, but like he, he he made his team. Whether his team was listening was a completely you know different different topic entirely. I think for a lot of the time they were, but he made his team you know like sit down you know whenever they wanted to like go smoke. He made them sit down and like listen to what I had to say. Listen to what Broken Shard had to say. Told them let's play this and this and this way. And always when he's in game, he really he never rages. Never ever rages. That's why that's the important thing that I noticed about Ocelot. And like, because I always like heard about this guy's a rager, right? But then when I saw him in game, he's always just like making calls. Sometimes the calls were correct, sometimes the calls were incorrect. And the, he also has a small problem that he thinks he's right. Mm-hmm. He always thinks that he's right. He's that kind of guy. He's like, you know, I'm right. I think this is the way the game should be played, or I'm right. I did make this call when I think there were times when I made I disputed with him or argued with him, said, no, you did not point out this, and this is what you should have done. So he's very stubborn, but. He, he's he's very calm in game. That's the and that's that was my first experience with him. And him as an owner, when I was actually a G two house, he was uh, very hands off with the team. And I think he you know he showed his appreciation of me. You know I think he he's a kind of the guy that dreams very big, and I think he works very hard. When I started to have problems with the team, he would come down and you know kind of talk to us and help us out. Obviously you know that the whole gamers two thing didn't end well because we had a bunch of internal problems and. I think that we just, I mean, we basically just got shit on by a bunch of people. But um, throughout it all, I think Ocelot was a very good person, you know, a very good person to work with. I ha- I have mixed feelings, you know, I have good and bad feelings about him as a manager and him as an owner. But I think that generally working with him in person was a very good experience for me. And I didn't learn a lot about coaching as I did about players player behavior when i was in g2 and part of that was because of ocelot yeah and fashion sense obviously yeah and fashion yeah the scarf <laughs> sense, obviously. Right. 
so you know this this uh, time with gamers too is interesting, not just because um, you know it's, it's Europe versus North America, but you also got a perspective of you know being an, at an LCS level and at a challenger level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and obviously these are two different levels of of teams, of players, of of money being thrown into things to a certain extent. And mm-hmm. could you just touch a little bit on the differences that you experienced engaging in those two levels of mm-hmm. League of Legends and what you would kind of throw out there for people? You know, what what are people who maybe don't know as much not seeing uh, as as the differences between these two things? <sighs> um. All the North American players and European players I've interacted with are quite... I don't know. I think that the main thing is it's very hard to describe. The culture, I think the culture is very, very different. Um, when, I was in, when I was in Europe, I think that... And you have to remember that a lot of these people come from different countries, right? I think mm-hmm. in our team, two, uh, Smitty and Gilius were from Germany... Aka was from France. Jeebus was from God knows where. Denmark. Uh, he, he, well, yeah, and yeah, and Hiva was from um, Finland. So, um, I mean, they they came from completely different places, but they take, you know, they do rage a lot. They do rage a lot more, and they do take solo queue more seriously. But when I was with them, I considered myself kind of like a dick of a human being. I was having a lot more fun. Maybe it's because they were all younger than me or the same age as me, but I was laughing a lot more. You know, I think they're. I think. The European LCS players were, you know, are very fun, very funny people, and um, these these challenger kids were eager to learn, and I was very appreciative appreciative of that. They never, um, a lot of times, like you know, they didn't want to play scrims, or a lot of times they didn't want to, you know, do anything. But whenever I asked them seriously to do something, um, besides one player who I really like, but I won't name right now, but eighty percent of them always did what I asked them to. And to this day, I'm really appreciative of that because even though we didn't win, I had a really good experience at G2 and I, re- I learned a lot about myself as a person and a lot about myself as a coach. But as for differences, I mean, I think you know, in terms of what's behind closed doors or behind the, you know, quote unquote, black curtain or something like that, there's not that many differences. Obviously, you know, there's this, I think the salary differences are the biggest part because, you know, I, I know that Huma is starting to pay their players more, but, you know, when People on when players on mid tier players on Ember are making like fucking 50k or more per year, then it's it's you know there there's a clear disparity between the two scenes. And not that I mean I'm pretty sure Ember is pretty much a dis, there's a disparity between Ember and other NACS and LCS teams. So there's that too. I think Europeans take solo queue a lot more seriously. They certainly rage a lot more. When I, well when I was in uh, Gravity House, a lot of the people there are very quiet, kind of quieter people. Bunny's very quiet. Keen's very quiet. Hans is very quiet. Mm-hmm. Cop doesn't like solo queue. Saint Saint was pretty quiet, but he I mean he was streaming a lot, so he was talking. Whereas in Europe, it was a bunch of yelling, a bunch of cursing, a bunch of, you know, words that I'm not able to say on this podcast. There's a bunch of stuff that I can't say on this podcast that they would just spout at every at every possible moment that is pretty horrible sometimes. And I would actually tell one of them, you know, you gotta stop saying this stuff around me because, you know, my ears are gonna bleed. But mm-hmm. uh no, I think at the end of the day, these most people just want to win. I think they just want, I think they just want to win, and they want a good coach to you know to to get that. In in LCS, obviously, since I was not a great coach, they were. Um, I think the players didn't listen to me as much. And when I was in Europe, the players did listen to me a lot. They listened to me very close, and I considered myself a good coach there. So obviously, you know the the 
to extend that litmus test would be if I cushion NACS, the challenger scene, what kind of reception I would get there. Although I don't know anymore because, you know, if I was coaching on Team Arena online, a lot of these people you know, come from Korea. So it would, mm-hmm. be, it would be hard to tell what, what exactly what kind of culture I'd be coming into. You brought up Puma and you brought up Ember, and that's been part of kind of a larger issue that's been talked about the last few right. weeks. Right. You guys uh, have re- been involved in that, I know. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but we did like, you know, we, we were part of that discussion and, and released some information that some people didn't take too kindly about. But I want to ask your opinion since you're on here and, and you've been involved in both North America and in Europe and in both the LCS and the, and the Challenger scene. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is is some validity to to publicizing salaries like Ember does, or do you think it's <sighs> not nece- you know not necessary? Publicizing salaries is the best thing for the scene because the scene stems from the individuals' players themselves, right? So if you want if you want to negotiate a contract, you know if I'm a quarterback and I want to negotiate a contract, and I know Walter, who's a worse quarterback than me, obviously. Is uh is making you know however many like five million dollars a year? I want to make six million, right? So it, it, there's 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 a logical thing there where you want you want job security. You want to know which orgs will take care of you because uh you want to gravitate towards certain or towards certain orgs. Usually this means the big orgs, but we'll have to see with these uh how these VC orgs come out. You don't want only want to see how much you know you're getting paid, but you want to see how you're being taken care of. You know, whether you're going to be made the chief gaming officer of an organization after you retire, whether you're going to be allowed to stay in the house after you retire, whether, you know, you're going to be able to have access to sponsor sponsor equipment after you retire. You want to see which orgs take care of you and releasing contracts does a lot to publicize that process um, for both the audience, which controls the market and the players, which provide that market. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing with releasing contracts is and I think the next three things are not going to be in line with what you with some of with some of the public statements that I've read what you guys have made. When you the problem is is that most a lot of Americans don't see this because they kind of like shit on like they say like oh LPL sandbagging and what and whatnot I always like shit on like Wan Kong and how like you know the owner of IG is some like millionaire play like multi-millionaire billionaire playboys the son of another millionaire mm-hmm. but the north american scene is becoming very very similar very very similar to what the chinese scene became and so this is we're in a very uh i don't know if this is the right word but we're in a very like precipitous and fragile situation mm. because even though we want continued investment in the scene we have to know what's tenable we have to know what's realistic ember salaries are not realistic mm-hmm they are not realistic at all. And when they release their salaries, it doesn't create an awkward situation for the organizations because if you're an organization, you can say, I ref- just ask any other owner. They don't pay you this much. It doesn't create an awkward situation for the organizations as much as if you're a player. Hmm. If I'm a mid laner and I see that Golden Glue is making 70K, I don't know the number, exact number, but if I see he's making 70K a year, right? And I wouldn't negotiate my contract around that, yet in my heart, I know that though that isn't a realistic number. I would feel uncomfortable asking the players for more money. It might even serve as a deterrent because they know, because so many people have commented on how that's so unrealistic, there might be some kind of counter-revolution or it might go the other way, right? You know, releasing mm-hmm. these unrealistic salaries has the opposite of effect and, you know, is a net hurt for esports. You know, I, I think what, for example, what Huma is doing is like really good. I think, you know, they're 
gathering a bunch of scenes players I, I know they got a holy phoenix from turkey right so they're looking far you know far and wide in order to bring players and they're p- paying them a very sustainable salary as as far as i know you know it might have changed since the last time i heard because I, when, when i was when i when i heard it was in the very early talks of acquiring players mm-hmm. but i think growth like that is fine but when you when you publish you know numbers like the one that ember paid and you have the gall to fucking like gloat about it and call yourself the paragon like call yourself a paragon or call yourself an organization that should be mimicked right mm-hmm. then it creates this uncomfortable situation because so when this bao lam guy or whatever the, or whoever, the, whoever the hell he is right high brother, brother or yeah former writer you know apparently god's gift to esports if if this guy is releasing the salary right and he, salaries right and he he has the the gall and pride to say that we are an organization that should be lauded, I, you know to some extent I agree with him because if you if what you're getting is net higher than someone else that's a good thing. The idea that we should be judging a team based on the percentage of their revenues that they are paying to their players rather than the flat salary themselves, right? Mm-hmm. That is pretty, as, as Thorne put it, insane because let's say TSM pays their player $2, right? But that's 50% of their revenue. And Team Coast pays their player $6, but that's only 20% of the revenue. Obviously, Team Coast is the better team, right? Even mm-hmm. though TSM pays their players more per- a higher percent or maybe takes care of their players more, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's that factor, but it's so awkward. Is what the timing is really really awkward. Is what the point is because these numbers are so in you know so inflated and so unrealistic that, like I said before, the I I think the players are going to be even you know more. There's going to be even more of a mystery on of how much players should demand from you know from their owners. So I I think there's that factor, and also there's also the other factor. That uh, I want to touch. That's not completely related. But when you guys released the contract of Stick, say, mm-hmm. and he was getting what, like seven hundred dollars a month or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> so like, mm. it, it, it it kind of shows you. I mean, I thought that was really good because first of all, this guy was like, I, I know this is probably not his LCS contract, but if it's his Challenger contract, right? Mm-hmm. This guy was probably who's he was retained throughout the Challenger series, and he was banned at some point, I think. So he was basically being paid seven hundred dollars to be a banned player. So, and there might have been stipulations in this contract that can't that, whatever. But the the point, of, the fact of the matter is, is that seven hundred dollars is really, really fucking good. And this was really fucking good half a year ago. So now someone's getting paid fifty thousand dollars for players that are honestly not that good. I think that a lot of these kids have talent, but they're not that good right now. I think they'd be you know a top, they'd easily be a top three team. But I don't know number one over OQ. It, it creates this awkward situation that uh, that no one really has the answer to, and I think until we see what the effect of salary inflation is in China, whether that mark quote unquote market bubble, as my friend Kelsey Moser likes to put it, whether that market bubble will collapse, we won't be able to tell what the progress of League of Legends or esports, the salary growth in uh, esports in North America will be. So that's something that I'm I'm that I by no means have any expertise in. But I think everyone kind of understands that it is a very awkward, awkward situation for players, for fans, and for organizations. Yeah, it's it, it's been a really 
interesting conversation to watch unfold, especially in the public eye. And you know, as far as our own role in it, um, my only regret is that by releasing the physical copy of the contract the way that we did, it detracted from the content of the podcast as a whole. You know, people who listen to it. um, You know, we had a lot of people. You know, experts within the scene. You know, reach out and you know talk about. You know, you guys made a lot of good points. It's a great conversation. People who listen to the podcast really got a lot of the things we talked about because we slammed Ember for a lot of the things that you're mentioning about how it wasn't sustainable and they were, you know, the timing of it was off and the way that they were presenting it and this whole idea of like, oh, we should get a players union too and we'd love to help fund that. Like that's (laughs) sketchy Mm -hmm. as hell and all that needed to be called out on and Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have that conversation just as much as I want to talk about the sticks ache part of the conversation. Right. But, you know, that's a lesson that I I know I've certainly learned is I I think Mm -hmm. we could have presented that much better um, because we lost some people that could have joined in on that conversation, a conversation Mm -hmm. that I think was really important to have and had a lot of different levels to it. You know, the CLG part of that conversation was four minutes of an hour and a half long podcast. Mm -hmm. And it, it sucks that, you know, because of how we presented it, that's the only four minutes that anyone looked at. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I only have myself to blame for that. That's something right. that you know I, I'm going to learn from and I'm going to do better at because I don't ever want the content to get lost. But as for your, your point on, on 6A and some of these you know, challenger contracts themselves, I, I think it is so important to get the whole picture first. Of all. Right. Like one team releasing one number is basically every economics major's worst nightmare because if you mm-hmm. know even the most basic thing about economics – you're familiar with the concept of outliers, right, the idea right, right. that there is going to be you know, the highest tier of, of just people that are way above the average, and then there's going to be a lowest point that's below av- you know, way below the average, and you mm-hmm. want the points that are statistically relevant. Yeah, like the, the regression, right? Right, right. and so, if, you don't, if you don't have that information because you're only getting a couple orgs that are releasing this stuff, well, what you're getting is selection bias. Um, Ember is going to release their stuff because their numbers are going to look inflated. They look really nice. They make great press statements. And you want to bet, you know, these are a lot of ex-rioters. Riot wants mm-hmm. nothing more than to be able to say, oh, look at this challenger team we can point to right here that's putting all this money into their players. Clearly, there's a lot of money in the scene. Like, this is great for them as far as investors are concerned. And, you know, take that statement as you will. But, uh, yeah. you know, you got to look at, uh, you know, who benefits, right? And the people who benefit from releasing contracts are people that right now are going to be on the upper end of that outlier spectrum. Whereas the Stixay contract we released, the Cloud9 Tempest contract we released, um, you know, we thought those were below average compared to what we were hearing from both, you know, statements that were made by Glee Blarbu in the public eye about where he saw like, you know, $1,300 a month as being, you know, below minimum wage, uh, especially for the hours that they were working and everything else. Um, you know, he had a problem with that salary. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and this was significantly lower than that per month. Uh, you also look at, you know, the organizations that were offering these, you know, CLG and Cloud9, certainly organizations that had the ability, you know, they, they, you know, should they be compared to the likes of organizations that are coming out of nowhere, uh, and are asked to make the same kind of salary claims? I would say there might be a different kind of level to which we hold certain orgs accountable. People can, can agree or disagree. And I think it's an interesting conversation. But I, I'm going to put it like this. It's something that, you know, my organization, I work, you know, for Imperial in Turkey. Right. And one of the things we're doing uh, is, is our players are salaried. So not only do they get the benefits of health insurance through Germany and everything else, because that's 
where our organization's based out of, that's where they're signing. Uh, but they're also assured, at the very least, German minimum wage, which is significantly more per month than Stixa or any of the Cloud9 Tempest or any of these guys were doing without, you know, and, and we're giving benefits that they're not getting from those kind of contracts because it's salaried versus, you know, you know, temp work and subcontracting and all that stuff. And we're doing it in the Turkish scene where there's not nearly as much money as an organization like CLG <laughs> or Cloud9 has. So that's where I kind of struggle. You know, people can say like, oh, $700, like, you know, we heard Cloud9 Tempest was paying less. And they're, you know, look at all these other people that may be paying less, especially in Europe. Those contracts are kind of, you know, they're in Europe, that contract is pretty average, sadly. And, you know, we've done the maths and we've looked at it and we've looked at how we can make a profit and protect our players. And it's not it's not nearly as hard as some of these orgs would like you to believe. And that's where I have the problem is because I've seen the maths. I've looked at the payroll. I've talked to the players. I've talked to the owner. We're looking at it. And if we can make it make sense in the Turkish challenger scene, I know CLG can do better than the contract they gave Stixay. And for the record, because I want to make this very clear, uh, Stixay made a public statement saying that when he – you know, when Malixia came in in the summer – his contract was renegotiated. That contract was only in the spring. He got right. a better contract in the summer. And and I I said I would do this on Reddit, so I'm going to do this now. I want to commend Malixia for that. I think Malixia has done a much better job of taking care of players than Hotshot GG may have when he was the full-time owner in the past. Uh, and, and that's something that's that's great to hear. I'm glad that's the case. I'm glad that that's not the contract Stixay was playing under when he was essentially a substitute for the main CLG roster during that summer split. But I, I think that we do need, you know, we, we need these numbers, all of these numbers to give players the perspective that they need. And yeah. until then, you're going to get some of that confusion that you touched on. You're going to get a lot of the issues and biases and, you know, you can swing all these things. But if you have all the information in front of you, if, if everyone came together and realized this is what's best for players, we are arming them with information and we believe that what we're doing and what we have to offer, we're proud enough of that to put it out in the public sphere and everyone did it. You know, outliers like Ember would be thrown to the wayside and outliers like the, the cheapest of the challenger teams are thrown out and then people would get an actual idea of what their value is. And I just think that's so important, especially when you're talking about players who are so young and don't have that kind of ability to negotiate. Walter, where, where do you come on? Because I, I want to make sure I'm not talking for both of us here too much. <laughs> so, so I, I think the I think uh, Soldier made a, a couple of really, really big points. The, the first being the, the China point, and that basically North America is emulating what China did last year with, with the, the roster inflation, the salary inflation. And I, I 100% agree. I don't think that the Ember salaries are sustainable. I don't think that all this VC capital, you know, money coming in is sustainable unless they see huge returns on it within you know the first couple of years. So I, I don't disagree with you on that. I have to applaud Golden Glue for somehow convincing a team to offer him a potential total salary of ninety thousand dollars and Jesus. Blue Garbu for that, that. Yeah, that's what his number is. After all the potential bonuses he could hit, it's ninety thousand dollars a year. Hmm. I, I Lord have to in apply. heaven. I have to applaud him. I don't think he's worth that much, but I got to applaud him. Same thing with Bleed Blarbu. I've made the joke multiple times back when they announced that they were doing this of they're building a team, quote unquote, around Gleeb Blarbu. And I laughed and I thought it was hilarious. I, good for all of them for getting money and contracts for literally just emerging, I think, in the, the challenger scene in the last like six months. Like basically only because of HTC attention has he all of a sudden appeared and there's kind of a dearth of jungle talent in North America. Like great on them. 
it's not sustainable unless that those uh, investors see a return on it. And I think it's, I, it's smart to look at China and see what happens there to potentially have a parallel in North America. I mean, you know, to to give you guys my closing statements, because I've been thinking because I haven't I, I actually hadn't thought about it for maybe like a few days, but I've been thinking about it. If you, you know, Chase, you thought you, you talked about how a lot of people were calling each other out. Mm-hmm. But the only person that I want to call out because I'm effing mad was was Snoop a, because I thought what some of the stuff that he wrote in his medium post was pretty asinine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, re- regardless of. You know, it's it's funny that it's funny that uh, one of the first lines. I think if I remember correctly, one of the first lines of his post, and I can bring it up if maybe a little bit later. But one of the first lines was his post was, "We should never look at things in a vacuum." Well, it's funny because, like, you know, if I try to look at this post in, you know, not look at this post in a vacuum, I'd have even a more negative view of Snoopy than I do now. Because, in my opinion, or from some players I've talked to. You know, he, he, he's been talking a lot about player unions and helping people out and, you know, working behind the scenes. But he hasn't really done that much to enlighten, you know, to enlighten either young players or to enlighten the community in general on how to create a better esports scene. I think Bryce Bloom has done a better job of that. Mm-hmm. And we I discovered Bryce Bloom through freaking Snoop So, you know, th- there, there's that. So, I mean, there's that. But just looking at his article in a vacuum, what I thought was very interesting and equally stupid about what he had to say was that he said something that went along the lines of it isn't the community's business to know about contracts and it isn't the community's business. It's, 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 it was akin to him saying something like, you know, you guys don't know anything. I know things and I'll help fix it one day, hundred years in the future or something like that. Yeah. And I, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Mm. You really have, you know, you've been talking about helping the esports scene about getting a player union, which would the basic point of a player union is to secure a visible wage, right? A, 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 a minimum wage for your players. Mm-hmm. You've been talking about establishing a player union, and you don't think that that contracts and salaries should be the business of the community. The community is the most important part of the market, and they're what inspires change. You know, whether, whether it's in the LCS or whether it's in certain teams or whether it's in you know even getting certain players or coaches fired. Mm-hmm. So of course you have to utilize the support in the community. But the idea that this man thinks that he can come in with the same kind of dumb, idiotic attitude as that Bao Lam guy did and act like he's Jesus mm-hmm. and then tell everyone that, you know, you guys don't know anything, but we do. And my inner circle is going to, you know, is going to help players out. Because you guys don't know what to do and you don't deserve to know. For me, that's you know, as a nine, as a ten, as eleven, as a twelve, <laughs> all the way to as a fifteen. Because and when I read that, I, I I just all I could do was shake my head because you know it's 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 really kind of I don't want to call it the, I don't want to call it like the riot attitude because I know a lot of good writer I know a lot of good writers, especially the ones that I met at LCS. Mm-hmm. But you know I I do call it you know I do have to call it that writer attitude sometimes because they they're so, a lot of times you know these people are so assured in their own you know so you know confident in their own knowledge that they they forget that it's the people and it's the community that's the most important factor of the scene the com- the growth of the community and the fact that the community stays enlightened and intelligent and knowledgeable is what the biggest you know source of change would be or what the biggest proponent of player unions would be right mm-hmm. so i i think that i really have to say that i'm disappointed you know he probably will never listen to this and i don't care but i have to say that i'm very incredibly disappointed with snoopy with his post and the idea that he can make the, some of the comments when, that he's making when he's 
basically told us a year and a half ago that he was going to inspire a revolution within the League of Legends Championship Series, and he has done no such thing as of this moment. Yeah, I, I found his post problematic for a number of reasons, some of which we went into on the podcast, and, and some of which I think you right, yeah. highlighted very brilliantly there. And I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, one of the things Walter and I came down to, you know, we, we've worked with Bryce a little bit in the past, so, so take that bias into account, but mm-hmm. we really loved the way that, that Bryce approached this, you know, this very kind of, you know, I think Bryce let's lie, lay out. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. He just he lays out the whole picture for us. And, you know, you come to your own conclusions, but there's a reason he comes where he is at the end of the day. And with Snoopy, I, I, I think that to, to some extent, and it's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, if you've ever been, you know, I can't imagine what it's like for a player going on our League of Legends because the number of, of memes of, of hate and vitriol and, and judgment on all these things. And you made a point like, you know, if you think about analysts that are coming in that are inexperienced, but at least they knew enough to get to the analyst part of things. Like, just imagine how many people are on Reddit or on Twitter, you know, constantly trying to explain all these things that are just so far below their actual knowledge level that just have no idea that they're, you know, pushing these buttons and having to deal with that constantly and deal with uh, everything else. It's rough. Um, I understand why he might be disillusioned by the uh, the needs to make these things kind of public, but at the same time. That's the only way, as you mentioned, to move forward. You need the public behind you. You need a program that people can believe in because if they don't, who will? You know, it's not, it's not the owner's job. It's not Riot's job. You need the players and the community as a whole to buy into this. And he's kind of put himself apart from that. And, and the way that he talks about, you know, I wouldn't want other players to know what my salary was when I was playing with them. I'm like, that's... Really kind of weird, actually. I, I feel like, you know, given how close you guys were, I figured you all probably knew anyway. And if you didn't, why? Right. Like, you of all people, the guy who wants to start the Players Union, doesn't want your own teammates to know your salary to make sure you're all being treated properly? That's That was weird to me. That that whole thing was very mm. not what I was expecting and, and somewhat disappointing, I, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, and and I, I know that I said that the last point would be my last point, but this is my <laughs> actual last point. But mm-hmm. I, I do want to say, you know, when we talk about the vitriolic community, I, I think it's important to know that people argue and people get mad because they care. They mm-hmm. genuinely, I think Reddit genuinely cares. And even though it's, you know, even though we hear a ton of memes about like, oh my God, like all this elite, elitism about don't go on Reddit and Reddit is so wrong. And mm-hmm. There's even a freaking series that Thorin makes, you know, about Thorn versus Reddit, in which he points out the idiocy, the, the so-called idiocies of Reddit, which I think is a fun, hilarious series, by the way. I really mm-hmm. enjoy it. But, but at the same time, people argue because they care. Like people hate on, like for example, if you're if you're a CLG fan and you were hating on Dexter, that doesn't. I don't think that makes you a fake fan. It just shows that you care. Maybe your hate is misguided. But you actually care. Mm-hmm. So I think that people in our League of Legends and just esports fans in general, even though they're vitriolic and even though they're prone to overreaction, they generally do want to see esports move forward. We've seen multiple examples of where fans have been, you know, even try to get, are like very motivated by when someone from outside the scene, you know, like ESPN or Turner or you know like one of these ho- one of that lady host from that news show from that Kellen Coward show when when they're when they come in from outside the scene and try to raise the profile of esports so i think fans do care and it's it's a mistake to it's a mistake to say that because they are 
ignorant, which is no fault of their own, but because they are ignorant, they should be ostracized from the pro from the process of you know player management and stuff like that. I think they have equally as much stake. Okay, maybe not equally as much, but I think they have a lot of stake in the community and certainly do have a lot of influence as the main player in this esports market. I, I would I would agree with that point, and I think that some of the the hatred for Reddit goes a little too far. Granted, there are a lot of a lot of assholes out there. There are a lot of yeah. dicks that you know don't want to listen to your entire podcast and are only going to focus on you know <laughs> one point is in his salary number, and oh, right, that's right. the only thing that matters. Which I, I want to go way back on the stick say thing of the one thing that I'm disappointed in is that that was the point that everyone was so focused on, and not the couple mm -hmm. of other points that then we had to like further explain in Reddit posts. But Reddit has led to a lot of interesting discussions, and I've seen some good points if you scroll down through some of the crap, and you'll see someone make a fairly good point. And you're like, listen, this should be the top comment, not someone with some meme, but that's what that's what gets Reddit gold apparently is memes and, and yeah. jokes and, and gifts and all that stuff. And, and to a certain extent too, like, you know, even when, when you have to wade through some crap sometimes, it's you can learn a lot from understanding, well, why was there so much crap on this post? What happened? Because it's very easy to blame the audience and tell them like, oh, they received it wrong or oh, they listened wrong or they, you know, digested what we, you know, what was trying to be said in the wrong way, which happens from time to time. But, you know, how was that argument presented? You know, did they approach it in the best way possible? If people are zoning in on one point, why did they do that? And what can you learn from that? And I think that just because it might not come from the most educated spot all the time doesn't mean those lessons aren't equally viable because you know what if they are defaulting to memes or whatever else it's probably because you know at the very least if, if memes are everything that we're seeing well then the post itself didn't evoke enough of a reaction to have that that conversation so maybe there's a better way to put it maybe there's another way to approach it you know if that makes any sense <clears throat> but, but speaking speaking about some some off-putting statements uh -oh. from from people in the community i want to bring up since you are a former coach in in, mm -hmm. in europe and in north america and lcs and challenger scene and you've had some experience whether you thought it was good whether you thought you were good at it or or terrible at it mm -hmm. uh, i want to bring up the some of the comments that that so has has made right. about about so has thinking that coast uh, coaches in the west really aren't necessary that, that he doesn't see a a spot which is kind of interesting when they've had a couple of fairly successful coaches on the team and, and Leduc and, and and Hermit or who is now going to be the leading coach of energy with the news that came out that that Charlie is no longer there mm -hmm. uh, as a coach as a mm -hmm. former coach and as a mm -hmm. former coach in the west what what do you think about these comments that that coaches really don't have a role in in the western league of legends Here's what I think. First of all, what I would say should not reflect my opinion of Soaz, of Soaz, and I think Amazing was in, on this argument too. I think both of them are idiotic, and uh, I see a lot of the, some of the stuff that they tweet out is like mind-blowingly dumb, on like really just whatever. Anyways, <laughs> I, I think that Soaz has a very strong point, more so than a lot of people give him credit for it, because he's had these problems in the past, right? You know, he's said similar things in the past, and every single time he said something like this, he's been rebuffed and said, like, oh, look at the Koreans, look at their, you know, look at the way they train. 
I remember um, talking with Thorin once, and he said something that really surprised me, that really struck a chord with me, and I and I th- and I would and I would something that I would think about for the rest of my time as a coach, or the rest of my time as an active coach. And he said, at this point, right, because of the with the salaries that Riot just introduced, right, coaches are the most overrated position in competitive League of Legends, and I think this is very interesting, and I think it's almost it's actually true. Coaches, especially in the challenges scene, challenges scene coaches is not not overrated. Okay, challenges scene you need coach. Okay, like because <laughs> uh, people in challenges scene are so bad that you mo- most of the time you need a coach. But in LCS, first of all, we go back to the problem of faulty coaches, right? Which I've said before. But even if you have a good coach, someone like Hermit, you know, who's a who's a who's a great who's a great coach, and he's actually the only person who I've always agreed with on like certain game knowledge topics. He and he and Matt GS. The thing with Koreans is that there's a culture there that respect that in which you have to respect your elders. Like, and I, I know this gets regurgitated a lot, but it's true. You know, I, I'm Korean. I'm Korean American, granted, admittedly, but um, I, I know that this is true, and I and I know that you know if you disrespect your elders, like you get you get beat up, and if you disrespect your coach, that's like that's a, almost an abomination. Then you'll be out of work, right? You know, to some extent, people say that this is an Asian thing. This might not even be an Asian thing. This might be even just a Korean thing, because in China, I know a lot of people don't. I know a lot of players in China don't respect their coaches, which is why you have so many different freaking coaching sagas in China, like so many weird like soap opera-esque stories in china about coaches changing teams about players disrespecting coaches and that that maybe that's one of the reasons why they perform so badly so i mean that kind of goes against the point that i was making but at least in the west i don't think coaching has gotten enough legitimacy yet i think that as new young players come in who you're raising from the ground ground up, teaching them the game and taking them from Challenger Series to LCS, coaches will really, I mean, they'll treat their coaches really, really well. And their organizations will treat their coaches really, really well. But at this point with Western culture, I think that coaches have a smaller impact than most people realize. Nothing in life, in basketball and football, in League of Legends, I, in my opinion, nothing overrides talent. Talent is the most important thing. Whether you coach forgiven or not, forgiven's gonna put in work, right? Yeah. Or what? You know, for example, SK Gaming. I I like Joe Interflame. Sorry, SK Interflame. I think he's a very good manager. But then, from what I from what I was told, he was not as much of a coach as much as of a player manager and kind of the team dad, right? Uh-huh. Which is fine. But at the same time, in that split, SK went on a freaking rampage, right? I mean, they were neck and neck with Fnatic to end the season. And obviously, at the end of the season, they kind of went downhill. Uh-huh. So I certainly think that gameplay coaches are very... Uh, I'm kind of like losing focus on my point. I apologize for that. But I certainly think that gameplay coaches are a little overrated and i would stress the idea that this is a two-way thing this is because of the players don't respect the coach and this is also because coaches in the scene are very bad and don't know their game knowledge isn't very good and aren't don't know how to control the team yet now as we get older coaches like woodbuck and you know blurred limes this might change so that's mm-hmm. why i that's why i told you before that i was very unsure to, of the effect of these former athletic people, especially older athletic people coming to the scene. So I think that might be a net good. Uh, I don't know how I feel about them. Uh, obviously the ideal is someone like, you know, is someone who has both the game knowledge and the um, 
but and the uh, you know coaching quote unquote coaching chops. But this is not even true in Korea. In Korea, the uh, the quote unquote who who are our people who would be our athletic coaches would be the head coach, and then or someone who's had a lot of experience in the scene but doesn't necessarily have game knowledge would be the head coach, and then they they have analysts. So I think that this is changing, but I do want to say that I believe SOAS has a really good point that might stand for another year or two. Maybe in two years on a different esports game, this might change, and coaches will become really important, and we'll have a Korea-esque structure. Right now, I I have a lot of hesitation. I really do have a lot of hesitation. And this is coming from a former coach myself, and I take a lot of pride in what I do, or at least in a lot of pride in what I did, even if I wasn't successful. I thought it was my game knowledge was really good, but at the same time, you know, nothing overrides talent. And I learned that in Gravity, and I learned that in Gamers too, because in Gravity, um, I think even though my coaching wasn't good. Or my coaching was like pretty mediocre. Besides, you know, we discussed pick ban, and then I watched all the scrims and made some small comments. Even though my coaching was like pretty mediocre, they went three and one. When I was in Gamers Two, I taught them a lot of stuff, and then we went we went like something like two and zero or four and zero in the first week. But then later we went like zero and six, not because the players were not talented, but because that roster didn't mesh. Right. So, so I, I think that's an important point that I have to make. It certainly doesn't excuse my failures as a coach, but I do. But it, it's it's something that maybe. Because of my failures, I have come to either realize or I have come to mistakenly believe as a result of my negative experiences. Um, well, obviously, I, that wasn't as eloquently put, but that's the best way I can put it. Thanks. No, I, I think it's it's a really interesting point, uh, especially given you know you have to look at the difference in how these scenes started, right? You know, when Korea comes in, they already have a history of StarCraft and other you know esports being these massive things. So the idea of team houses and coaches and all these things—I mean, they were just ready to go. These, you know, the the companies that were going to be involved already had the infrastructure set up. They knew exactly how to make a team house. You know, they immediately got, you know, the, the sister team, you know, kind of set up. So these teams were scrimming each other all the time. It really, you know, it, it was built with that understanding in mind and that culture that you, you so eloquently touched on. Whereas the West, you have a lot of guys who, you know, if you ask ex Peke or Soaz or, you know, even maybe the old school Ocelot, they would have told you, you know, they never had a coach. They became mm-hmm. successful. They became famous. They got all these accolades and whatever, and they did it on their own because they had the knowledge. They had the skills. They had the abilities that got them there. And that's not untrue. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, those were very special players and, and talents. And, you know, you're going to come across guys that are going to be great no matter what you do. Uh, I think that's undoubtedly true. You know, a guy like Forgiven is going to be great no matter what you tell him gameplay-wise. You might need mm-hmm. different types of coaches to work with him because of personality quirks and everything else. But from a gameplay perspective, yeah, Forgiven just naturally kind of gets it. Um, <clears throat> but you've got to – you know, I, I think the the point that you made that I, I think is the most important to kind of take in uh, if you're just a fan or whatever is how much this is likely to evolve over the next two years. Because right now we're only on the second year of coaches being a necessity in, in the West, right? right. Um, we're still figuring out a lot of these things and we don't have a system. We can't point to like, oh, well, SKT, we've done this since you know the early to mid 1990s with StarCraft. So we know exactly what to do. We're behind on that. And it's going to take time to figure out what is the balance of infrastructure. How many analysts are too many analysts? And you know what are we missing? You know wh- what kind of analysts do we need? Or what kind of coaches do we need for these particular roster things? And how do they all fit in this larger puzzle that I think that you're kind of t- you know talking about when you're talking about you know talent and player fit and 
you know, meshing with the scheme and, and, and whatever it is that you bring to that table. Um, coaching is one part of that. And how big a part of that it's going to be is something that is certainly going to be very different two years from now than it is today. Mm-hmm. And I, Yeah, I you, you very eloquently made my point for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. We, uh, we have been talking for a long time, and I, I thank you so much for giving us uh, so much time today. It's, it's been great to talk with you. Soldier, I want to, I want to, I guess let's wrap things up here because we've been talking for a very long time and I think we've covered a ton of points and I want to, yeah. I want to personally thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for, like I said in the pre, you know, in the beginning, pulling back the curtain and kind of exposing some of what goes on behind the scenes. Uh, you very, you've obviously brought up your, your, <laughs> your previews that you're going to do on your YouTube channel. Is there anything else you want to plug? Are you at all in any discussions with maybe any teams? Are we potentially going to see oh my God. Soldier this year? No, I, I, there were some offers on the table I, that I think that could have gone somewhere, but I decided that uh, you know, I just want to finish out my education. My education is the most important thing to me right now. So maybe maybe for a different game one day, all the way in the future for League of Legends 2, but uh, not this time around. But I'll be a very avid spectator. Um, as for plugs, obviously there's my YouTube channel, there's my Twitter at Soldra with two A's, and um, I especially want to give a shout out to Matt GS8, former coach of Teammate, because uh, he's the per- he's probably the person who I throw around the most ideas to. Um, and shout out to all the content creators like you guys, Thorin, Ryan Tang, even the content creators who I don't think do a good job, who or who I think have. You know, who presented like faulty rankings, NALCS and EULCS rankings? I want to give a shout out to them because, you know, I think they're brave enough to dictate to a completely unknown audience what their thoughts are, and I certainly think that this is just a preview of what's to come and what I and I what, what I want to really work on in the coming year, which is you know my diction, my ability to speak to a camera, my ability to be charismatic. So hopefully this year will be you know 2016 will be a year of growth, and I'm excited for you know whoever is coming on the ride to join me and seeing Soldra blossom into a beautiful, into a beautiful flower. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know, I know I look forward to it. Your, your Twitter. And when I started to follow the, the army of Twitter analysts, you were one of the first that I hit the follow button on. And it has been entertaining, not only for league, but also some other things that I promised I would never get into on a podcast with you. Uh, But that being said, (laughs) once again, thank you so much for being on and, and, and adding your wisdom and your thoughts on, on what a coach should do and, and mm-hmm. uh, what, what it takes to be a successful coach. Uh, Chase, as always, it's been a, it's been a wonderful show. And uh, first of all, again, soldier, it's, it's wonderful to have you on. Um, always yeah. got to, you got to keep the old Paravine connections together. Word. It's like the, Word. the old us. brotherhood. Uh, we're not, uh-huh. we're not quite Grantland level as far as uh, great writers <laughs> that have all spread across the seas, but there were uh, a lot of cool minds there. It's always awesome mm-hmm. to, to catch up with you guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, you should totally subscribe to us at uh, soundcloud.com slash esports gambling hour. That name is changing really, really soon. I just need the official go ahead um, from my boss. That'll be happening within the next week or so. But if you subscribe now, you'll be good. Uh, same thing with iTunes.com esports gambling hour. If you find us on iTunes through that name, uh, you can subscribe to us. We love talking to you guys. So you should definitely go find us on Twitter. I am at RedShirtKing. And Walter, where can they find you? You guys can find me at CDs underscore LOL. It is awesome to have been able to share this show with you guys. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And until next time, goodbye, Internet.